I don't look at my retirement so much as a retirement. I look at it as a renaissance. Talking with people about how to have a great retirement. This is the Rock Your Retirement Show. We don't talk about money, but we talk about almost everything else you need to rock your retirement. Now, here's your host, Kathy Klein. Welcome to Rock Your Retirement. This is a show where we talk about what you need besides money before you retire. We talk about retirement lifestyle on this show, not money. And if you'd like to have a more interactive experience, you can join our private Facebook group by searching for Rock Your Retirement Community on Facebook, or better yet, just go to rockyourretirement.com slash Facebook community. Today, I have a wonderful guest on my show. His name is Dave Hughes, and he is the founder of Retire Fabulously, a website that provides the knowledge, tools, and inspiration that you need to plan your ideal retirement lifestyle. So Dave and I, we're kind of kindred spirits. We both talk about the lifestyle of retirement. He's also an author. He has authored Design Your Dream Retirement, which enables you to envision, plan for, and enjoy the best retirement possible. And he is a well-known author. He writes for Retire Fabulously, of course, and also the U.S. News. His articles have appeared on Yahoo Finance, AOL Money, something I can't pronounce, (laughs) (laughs) IGBTSenior.org, Top Retirements, and Tiny Buddha. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Kathy. It's great to be on your podcast. Well, I'm so happy that you agreed to be on the show. Tell me, how did you think of Retire Fabulously? Because I thought I was pretty much the only person doing this. Well, it's interesting. I started this journey about four years ago while I was still working, and I noticed the same thing that you did, and that is that there's a lot of resources on the web as well as in magazines and on books and in books and so forth about how you save money for your, your retirement and how you invest and how much money you should take out once you retire, all the financial stuff, but relatively little information about how you're actually going to live your life after you retire. And so I was very interested in that as well. And so I decided to start my website, start my blog, and I became an information sponge. I tried to find everything that was already out there about it. I also included both my own experience and those of people I knew, as well as my parents. And they had a very good retirement, and they, uh, in many ways, were an inspiration to me as I looked forward to mine. Now, are they still living? Uh, no, they've passed away by now. But I'm sorry. They, they, oh, that's fine. And they actually had a retirement that lasted almost 30 years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and mo- <laughs> and, right, and most of it, they were active and they traveled and they, they did pretty well. Wow, so you had some great role models with your own retirement. I did. Yeah, so are they basically your main inspiration or was it something else just not being able to find what you were looking for? Well, it's sort of a combination of both, and there's one other element on that, and that is that not only did I find relatively little information about retirement lifestyle planning, I found practically nothing regarding 
any specific or unique concerns that LGBT people might have, which is lesbian, and gay, bisexual, or transgender. And I happen to be gay. And so I initially started the website with that point of view. I realized not too far along that really 95% of all the concerns about having a wonderful, enjoyable retirement are the same for all of us. There's really only a few areas that become unique uh, when you get into the into the LGBT space. Now, I never would have known you were gay based on the name of your podcast or or blog, Retire Fabulously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't you love the way I say that? <laughs> I, just, I do. I love the name of your show or your, I keep calling it a show, but it's a blog, right? Right. Have you ever thought about doing your own show? Well, I have. I actually started a podcast series last year called Lifestyles of the Happily Retired. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and I, I, I was looking for people who have also created good retirement lifestyles for themselves and had something unique to offer. I did three interviews in that, and I actually plan to continue that this year. But one thing I noticed was that at least with my current readership, not that many of them are inclined to listen to podcasts. And so I would get a fraction of the, well, listenership, I suppose, as opposed to readership for the podcast that I did for my articles. Now, of course, the other side to that is if I publicize it as a podcast, I could be attracting an entire new audience, which is a good thing. So that's on my back burner as one of the things I want to resume and pick up doing again is my series of interviews with people who are already living good retirement lifestyles and some of the things that they're doing and some of the advice they have to offer. Well, let me know how that goes, because this year I'm going to be changing the format of my show a little bit, and I want to have breaks in the show where there's a quick tip, you know, like a three-minute or a five-minute tip from somebody. And Mm -hmm. um, if you don't want to do an entire podcast, perhaps you would be interested in doing one of the tips. So just keep me in the loop about what you're doing in the future. I'd I'd love to keep on top of that. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, because, you know, it's it's a lonely world being a podcaster. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, these days, people are just starting to understand what a podcast is. So I totally understand your boat. I mean, our listeners, our viewers, our readers, they're not as technically inclined as the 20 and 30 somethings. They have iPhones, but they don't tend to use all the apps on them. They might use Facebook and that's it, right? Right. Yeah, so it's a, right. a long road. Right, I- exactly. And and they're just not used to getting information in the podcast format. You know, they of course, throughout most of our lives, you know, we've relied on paper, whether it's newspapers or magazines or books. And people have, have made the switch to the Internet really well. But listening is just something that you always did for music, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, there are people who enjoy audiobooks, although that's, that's also a somewhat smaller segment. But, but I think to many people in the 50s and 60s age range, listening to something to gain the same type of information you would get from reading a magazine article is still a very new concept, and they're just not in the habit of doing it. You're right. I have to tell you, though, that listening to podcasts kind of saved me during the last political thing that we had, you know, it it really saved my life because I turned off the TV. 
I turned off all of the news that was stressing me out. And I just listen to podcasts. So I tell my listeners, you know, my listeners are grown one on one. I mean, we're about to break 10,000 downloads, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's all one on one. Um, you know, I'll meet somebody and I'll tell them about it. And they had no idea that they could listen to a podcast on their iPhone. Like, yeah, it's already there. You just have to search for the show, search for the topics of what you like. I think over over the years, you'll find more and more people in their 50s and 60s listening. I mean, there's even some people that listen to my show that are in their 70s. So it's a growing. They just don't know about it yet. You know, there's not a right. lot of advertising. It just had the word has to get out, but I've heard of it being mentioned on other people's shows about podcasts. So I think the word's getting out. Eventually, you'll see more and more. Well, yeah, I, I, that, that's that's encouraging, and that that gives me a little encouragement to you know maybe pick up my podcast series again this year. I think you should because the more people that are talking about retirement lifestyle, the more that space is going to expand. So I don't mm-hmm. look at people who do this as competition. I welcome them. I want more people podcasting about these topics. So I would love it if you did that. Excellent. And I think I, I agree. I think this is a, a classic case of a rising tide floats all boats. Absolutely. You know, it's not a competition. Yeah. So tell me, you've been, you have been writing your blog now for four years. Is that correct? Yeah, about three and a half. Okay. So what is, if you had to put your finger on it, what is the number one thing that you have learned in that three and a half years that my listener should understand? Wow, the number one thing. That's sort of tough, but first of all, I think it's obvious that a lot of people don't really think a lot about what they will do with each you know, with, with their days once they retire. And a concept that I like to to introduce to people is the concept of I I don't look at my retirement so much as a retirement. I look at it as a renaissance. Mm. In other words, this is, this is an opportunity for you to redefine your life and perhaps create the life you always wanted in the first place. And an example from my own life is this. I love jazz and I play the trombone. I'm reasonably good. I'm not good enough to get a recording contract and make records or anything like that, but I'm reasonably good. And... If you had asked me in high school, you know, what would I really like to do as an adult when I grew up? It would be like, well, I'd love to play my trombone. <laughs> I'd love to be a professional musician. But of course, reality set in, and it said that, you know, if I relied on my musical skills as a career, I would be one hungry guy. You know, <laughs> one hungry and homeless guy. <laughs> so obviously, a career in software engineering made a lot more sense. But now that that I've ended my working career and I have retirement savings and all that, this gives me the opportunity to finally do the things with my life that I really wanted to do. And so now I, I play my trombone a lot more. I'm in four bands. And that story can be similar for all of us. I mean, we, we make compromises, we make choices, we give up things throughout our working career, especially if you're also raising children and they take up so much of your time and all that, that once you get to this point where you no longer have to worry about whether what you do can earn a living, it really opens the field up for becoming who you were really meant to be. And so I think if that's, that's the one 
thing that, number one, I've learned for myself and the number one message I, I try to convey to my readers is to look at your retirement not just as a retirement, but as a renaissance. That is awesome. Look at your retirement as a renaissance. I love it. That is fabulous. Yeah, because, you know, it doesn't have to, but for many people, the word retirement carries baggage. And it shouldn't, but to some people it does. And renaissance, I think, is a much more positive, possibility-filled way to look at this large phase of your life. You know, I have been talking with other guests on that same issue that the word retirement is icky. You know, we don't Mm -hmm. like that word. So I love that renaissance. We're going to have to come up with a word like that that conveys what we want to say without using the word retirement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the conundrum is, of course, retirement is the word people will type into search engines when they're looking for articles or, or content that they want to read about or listen about. You know, people aren't going to type in renaissance. And so right. <laughs> it, it's, we, we straddle this line between writing about words that people will relate to and search for and then introducing them to the new concept. Right. Now, I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, and that is you are in four bands. Yes. Wow. I mean, that must take up a lot of your time. Tell me about that. Well, so one of the bands is a wind symphony, which is like you know, 50 or 60 pieces, and it's very similar to the concert bands you probably had in your high school. You know, lots of brass, trumpets, trombones, French horns, tuba, you know, and woodwinds, you know, flutes, clarinets, saxophones, that sort of thing in a percussion section. In other words, an orchestra, but without the strings. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm in one band of that uh, type, and then I'm in three jazz ensembles. Your, your standard, like, you know, 16-piece swing-era big band. That, that instrumental format didn't die out at the end of the swing era. There are, there's still a lot of great music being written for the jazz big band today. So the other three are these big bands, like five saxes, four trumpets, four trombones, piano, bass, drums. Do, do people dance to these, or is it a sit-down concert? Both. Both. More often, they're sit-down concerts, although we do still play some of the old Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman stuff that people will get up and dance to. A lot of the newer repertoire is more concert or club-oriented, and so that's primarily what we do. But two of the bands are offered through local community colleges, and then uh, two of the jazz bands, and then the Wind Symphony and one of the other jazz bands are actually groups that we have in Phoenix that are geared primarily to the LGBT community, but we have plenty of straight allies who participate in them as well. And the community college thing was a real eye-opener for me as well, because it's interesting that, that these bands have two major categories of people who play in. One are the college students who are recent high school graduates, and then most of the others are retirees, who are guys like me who have finished their working careers and have more time on their hands and have gotten their instruments out again. And sometimes they've gotten them out after not playing for 25 or 30 years. And and so I've really come to appreciate that community colleges offer as much, not only in music, but in all their course programs, they offer as much to citizens of all ages as they do to the kids who were just in their next year or two after high school. You know, when I was a financial advisor, I used to tell people, 
send your kids to community college the first two years. The degree does not state that they went to community college the first two years. It just states where they graduated from. Mm-hmm. And quite honestly, Dave, I think they get a better education because there's only 40 kids in the class instead of 400 when you're a freshman and a sophomore. I know that's a little renegade, but that's how I feel about it. Plus, you save lots and lots of money doing it that way. Well, sure. And also, it, it allows it, it's a little easier to kind of progress in steps from your high school to college and then to a major university, um, which I think is really helpful, you know, for, for a lot of kids, especially if they're not sure what they want to major in yet, that sort of thing. That's good advice. Thank you. Okay, now I have another question for you. So I have no idea if my audience is gay or straight or black or green or white or anything demographic about them except for their age, basically. Um, okay. So you said that the issues surrounding retirement are 95% of the same for everybody and then 5% difference for LGBT. Do you care to tell us what the difference would be? Sure, I'd be happy to. The major difference is in our options for good places to live when we retire. In my experience and, and from what I have learned so far, even though many people think about, they, they entertain the fantasy of maybe going someplace else when they retire, really only about 30% do and 70% remain in the area where they lived for the majority of their working career. But still, we all like to think about, oh, where would be a great place to retire? And for lesbian or gay people, our choices are a little more limited. If you think internationally, they're certainly limited because there are countries in the world that are extremely unfriendly and and hostile to gay people and others that are very good. And even within the U.S., of course, now we have marriage equality nationwide, but still there are some areas that are friendlier than others. And that enters into not only your comfort on a day-to-day basis. You know, if you show up at a restaurant with your spouse, are you going to be treated well or are you going to be seated off in the corner or, or what have you? But even more important, later on when it comes, if it becomes necessary to move into a nursing home or you get medical care, things like that, there's wide variation across the country as to how well institutions are going to accommodate same-sex spouses and and, uh, other people that may be in your close circle of friends, your support group, that sort of thing. So probably the major area is choosing a place to live. Um, For example, you know, a lot of the, the articles you read about great places to retire might include, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, you know, Tennessee has some very nice places. They those places aren't real progressive towards LGBT people. <laughs> so uh, our our list is a little bit different. So what do they do? I mean, do do people like I can't imagine anybody being mean to you just because you're gay. I mean, what what do they do? Well, well, that that's kind of sad that uh, unfortunately it still happens in this day and age. But there have been cases where people are admitted to the hospital and their spouse doesn't get hospital visitation rights. I, that was even more prevalent, you know, prior to us. 
achieving nationwide marriage equality, but still, when it comes time, say, to move into a retirement home, mm-hmm. the uh, administration and the staff may not be willing to recognize our relationships. They might put people in separate rooms, which they wouldn't do if they were doing for spouses. Um, there's actually been a lot of, in some ways, the senior health care industry has lagged behind a lot of the rest of society in their um, diversity training and in their attitudes towards such things. Wow. You know, here in San Diego, where I live, so I'm part of the Caregiver Coalition here, and mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, we had somebody come and speak with us, and forgive me, I don't remember the name of the program, but I will put it in the show notes. But I know that the the center... There's like a chamber of commerce here that is specifically for gay people. And they have Mm -hmm. a certification program for people who want to go through it. So they have two types. They have gay friendly, and then they have these people that are certified. And the people who are certified, like they understand better how to communicate with with gay people. It's not just that they're, they're not discriminating or mean to them or anything like that. They, they've gone through this program. And one of the things that he talked about in the meeting that I attended was just what you're talking about with nursing homes. And so I find that to be very interesting. I guess that is a nationwide issue. Mm-hmm. So I don't know and, if you have a certificate, if there's any kind of a nationwide certification or if that's just something they're doing here in San Diego. I think that's unique to San Diego and maybe a handful of other places. It's not nationwide at all. So one other you know, consideration is that sometimes it isn't necessarily institutionalized discrimination, but sometimes whether it's either a 55-plus active adult community you might choose to move into or a assisted living facility or something like that, there's also the consideration of the other residents. And and I know I'm probably going to catch, you're going to get hate mail for this guest who came <laughs> on your air and said this, but uh, honestly, the p- people who are now in their 80s or whatever grew up in a time where tolerance or acceptance of LGBT p- people was not as common. And, uh, you know, I think there are statistics to prove that each subsequent generation becomes a lot more positive and accepting where LGBT people are concerned. So we're still dealing with some people who throughout most of their lives have not had to deal with LGBT people and may still be uncomfortable doing so. And so from my standpoint, if I were to choose to move into uh, a, say, a 55-plus active adult community, of course, that involves buying a house and really you know, committing to living there. And then if I were to find out I was ostracized by many of my neighbors, you know, that, that wouldn't be a very good situation to be in either. I'm at the edge of my feet, but we are going to take a short break and then we'll come right back with Dave Hughes. How many books do you need? Hi, this is Lisa Woodruff, and I'm a professional organizer and productivity expert, and I'm tackling the tough topic of how many books do you really need today? So books are a touchy issue. People love their books. They're like little children, and they don't want to let them go. I know I'm an avid reader, and it was really hard for me to declutter some of my books, and I still have three full bookshelves. 
But what I found when I started was I had about eight bookshelves worth of books. How many books do you have? The step one is to start consolidating your books into less bookshelves. So if your bookshelves are sort of full, go ahead and pack them full of books and let's have less bookshelves of books and start looking towards creating a library of books versus using books as an ornamental decoration. As you consolidate your bookshelves and run across books that you will not likely not read again or give to a friend, go ahead and donate those to the library. You can still check them out yourself and read them later if you change your mind. And finally, now's the time. You're rocking your retirement. So spend that time rereading your favorites and reading the books you never got to the first time. Check out the Organized 365 podcast for more on how to get organized as you rock your retirement. Welcome back. I'm here with Dave Hughes, and we are talking about finding retirement communities for the LGBT community. Yeah, it's tough because you can't you can't control people who are not you know employees or who aren't doing anything illegal, right? So that's Correct. that's tough, and you're right. People that are older do have a different. You know, they didn't grow up with the openness. You know, that's what I've noticed that, you know, whenever my husband, my husband is 20 years older than me and he'll say something about not just, not just uh, LGBT, but anybody, African-Americans or whoever, he'll say, oh, they discriminated or he'll, he'll say, and I say, when I grew up, we didn't think anything of that. We didn't look at those things. And I know that 20 year olds look at it even less than what I, what I'm now, maybe that's different in some of those states that you mentioned. I don't know. I, I've always lived on the West coast, but you know, we, um, I never think of those things. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it does vary both, uh, in various age brackets and it also, it definitely varies in different parts of the country. So yeah, there are still, you know, parts of the country where gay people, don't go. Yeah, exactly. Where where we don't choose to go, or even if we live there, have to be a little more careful. discreet or less yeah. open than yeah, careful. Exactly. Okay, so where do you go? Are there fifty five and older gay only communities, or where do you go? I mean, here in San Diego, you know, we have Hillcrest, but that's not right. a that's not a fifty five and older. That's it's everybody. Mm-hmm. So are there communities like that that are specific to people in your community? There are a few. Well, basically, to promote a recent article on my website, I actually wrote an article about this a couple months ago. I, I kind of compiled a list of what retirement community options we have. And there are a few. Uh, there's a place in Santa Rosa, California, that to me is, is sort of the Cadillac of gay and lesbian retirement homes, and it's called Fountain Grove Lodge. It is a continuing care community. So you move in there, and you may still be completely active and independent. And so in that case, it's basically a condo with, with you know, a lot of common areas and, and 
you know, meals and activities and that sort of thing. So that's like the cruise ship on the ground. Oh, exactly. And, and you, as you age and your needs change, if you start needing assisted living, you can get that right there in the same room. They don't even move you to a different place, you know, on the campus. Awesome. And then finally, if you need nursing home, you can even still get that in your room. So it's what they call a continuing care retirement community or CCRC. There's a buy-in, right? It's usually... Oh, yes. Yeah. So here in San Diego, the buy-ins are between 250 and a million, something like that, on yes. those type of community, probably more up in Northern California where you are. Yeah. Actually, the buy-in for this was more in the range of 250 to half a million or, or so forth. And, and of course, there's monthly charges as well. So it, it's not cheap. But I've learned that it's actually not out of line for compared to other CCRCs. And in terms of getting what you pay for, it's a good value, but it is not cheap. I'll tell you that. And then there are a few places. For example, there's a community east of Santa Fe and also one in North Carolina near Boone, which are essentially subdivisions out in the countryside that sell primarily to LGBT homeowners. And you would buy a lot and build a house on it and that sort of thing. There's a couple places in Florida which are basically manufactured home or RV parks. The other option that is growing more is low-income housing, which is government-subsidized. And so there are now apartment complexes in about six of our major cities, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Minneapolis, Chicago, Philadelphia, and one more I'm temporarily forgetting, that are low-income housing and they're essentially government-subsidized apartments. And a few more are being built, and those have a huge waiting list. They tend to sell out even before they open. And so there's obviously a big need there because um, the LGBT community is similar to the community at large and that there, unfortunately, are a large number of people who, for one reason or another, haven't been able to save adequately for retirement and need low-income housing. Hmm. I guess the the gay people that I know are not in that situation. They usually have way more money than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, and that's true. Uh, many of us do because many of us didn't have to raise kids our entire life and all that. But, you know, there, there are plenty of others who didn't, just like in the population at large. Right, absolutely. So these low-income housings are specific to the LGBT uh, community? Well, here's the thing. Yeah, now there certainly are income requirements. And then your rent is computed based on a sliding scale of what your income is. But it, it isn't legal to say only LGBT people can live here. And, and that should be illegal because uh, just like we would not want to have laws passed that say no LGBT people could live here, we shouldn't have laws passed that say only LGBT people could live here. And, and I think in some of these places they actually have some non-gay people living there, but, you know, they can be built and advertised to and sort of targeted for that community, but there's no way to legally say, gee, you have to be gay or lesbian to live here, and I wouldn't even want that. I, right, I, I exactly. I don't think that's right. But if I went knocking on the door, if I qualified low income and I said, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested, then somebody would tell me, okay, just want to make sure that you know that we have a 
high percentage of LGBT or am I going to just all of a sudden be shocked that every single neighbor I have is gay? (laughs) Yeah, I I think anybody who went to live there would do so with their eyes wide open. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, because, you know, you never know what people are going to think, right? And you want to make sure that you keep the community friendly. Exactly. So is that the number one issue, just um, housing and nursing homes? Or are there other issues that are different from the non-LGBT community? Well, you know, there are a couple others that are similar. One is that, at least speaking personally, and I think many other people would feel that way, I enjoy living in a community where there are at least a few like, you know, gay organizations, a a couple gay churches, maybe a few predominantly gay restaurants or bars, that sort of thing. In other words, where I had a little bit of community to interact with. And, you know, I think it'd be the same for anybody who is Asian or, you know, black or Hispanic or, you know, whatever your form of diversity is, you like living in a place where you know there's at least some other people like you, and there's a little bit of a sub-community there that you can fit into and that supports you. And so I, I think just simply living in an area where there was enough of a gay community around me that I would have socialization and support and that sort of thing. And that's important not just on a day-to-day basis, but the other thing is a challenge that many of us, gay or straight, who uh, don't have children, or maybe we ended up living in an area where we're separated from the rest of our families or whatever, have a little bit of concern that when we, when we really grow old, who will be our support network? And so I think that's, that's why it's essential you know, throughout our lives, but especially throughout our retirement, to cultivate a social network and a support network so that when you really need help, you start becoming homebound or maybe you have a medical episode or whatever, you have a support system that will help take care of you. And so that's where the value of community comes in. You know, that's one of the things that I talk about in my, I I have this little freebie called Secrets About Retirement that your broker won't tell you. And Mm -hmm. we talk about that in chapter three, and that is support groups. So it's not just people in the LGBT community that need that support group, you'd be amazed at how many people just in the general population don't have it. When I was just talking with a friend of mine a couple of days ago, a couple actually, and they're going to be retiring this year and they're going to be moving to another state. And I said, so how, how are you going to be social? What are you going to do? And they said, well, our daughter will, will include us in her things that she does. And I said, well, don't, don't you need your own, <laughs> your own activities, your own friends other than your daughter? I mean, they, they weren't considering this at all. And so, you know, it's, it's not just the LGBT, it's all communities. Everybody needs that support system. And they've done studies that shows that you will live a longer and healthier life if you have that support system. So kudos to you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, loneliness and lack of socialization is one of the biggest concerns of all retirees. And, and I think that's only going to get worse because over the past few decades, we've evolved into a society where people move more. Uh, they're more likely to be geographically dispersed from uh, whatever family they may have remaining or even people that were friends of theirs throughout their work career. And that that's 
especially emphasized if you decide to move someplace else when you retire, as you just said. Yeah. So what do you feel about social media? Do you think that places like Facebook help create community or make it worse? What, what's your opinion on that? You know, I, I think about that a lot. I think it's like many things. There are good things about social media. And let's just say Facebook, although, it, of course, there's other forms of social media as well. But there are good things about Facebook and there are bad. And the good things are that it is easier for people to stay in touch with friends they've had throughout their lives, that kind of thing. So that's good. But the downside is I don't want us to become a generation where we get all of our so we're all a bunch of individuals holed up in our own homes, sitting in front of a computer screen, interacting with the rest of the world just by computer. So there's some good to that, but those people on the other end of the, the the internet tube, so to speak, aren't the people that are going to be able to come to your home and help you if you start needing rides to the doctor or home health care or stuff like that. So I use the computer a lot all day long, too, but I still really need to have human contact as well. So there's an upside, but there's a downside. I mean, if, if it keeps people from getting out into the world and making real-life human friends and, and developing a local support network, then that's not such a good thing. So do you have any advice to people about how they can create that network? I mean, can it start on Facebook and then go, like, are there support networks when you say, hey, let's have a cup of coffee if they live in your same city? Well, yeah, exactly. There are things like meetup groups and Facebook groups and all that. So yeah, uh, Facebook and just the internet in general is great for being able to locate these groups. But once you locate them, then you need to actually just get out and make the effort to go join them and, and meet the people. So I've come to learn that all things are good in moderation. And that applies to just so many things in life. But internet use is one of those things. I certainly wouldn't want to go back to living without the internet as we did in the early part of our lives. Right. But too much of it, like many other things, I think is detrimental. So, you know, you use it for the things that are good, but then still, at the end of the day, nothing substitutes for having real life people in your life. That is really, really good advice. And you've done something else that I am very impressed with. You created a guide, the Retirement Visualization Guide. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So that has evolved a little bit. It's now in its third edition. And this simply asks some of those questions that people, I think, need to ask as they start thinking about their retirement. And ideally, they'll start asking and answering these questions several years before they leave the workforce. I think one of the other things I, I really try to emphasize with people is, you should probably start, I mean, ideally 10, but at least five or three years before you retire to really think about what you're going to do with every day and what you're going to do with your life and everything after you retire. I think a lot of people wait until they have their retirement party and they walk out the door of their last day at work and then they start thinking about what am I going to do? And I, in some ways, that's too late. Uh, I think it's a great idea to start asking those questions several years before you retire. And the Retirement Visualization Guide is designed to do just that. Uh, it, it asks questions 
about what are you going to do for exercise? What are you going to do to meet people? What are some of the things on your bucket list? Where would you like to live? And, and diving a little farther down into each of those questions, on the where do you want to live question, it'll ask, do you want to try to stay in your same house? Do you want to move to a smaller house in your community? Do you want to move to another state? Do you want to move to another country? And so it, it asks a series of questions to get people to think about what their life is going to be like after they retire. And for people that are partnered or married, uh, I suggest that you download two copies, have each person do theirs independently, and then sit down and compare your answers. Because it's amazing how often we think that you know, we, we come up with our idea for what we want to do in our retirement, and we just assume that our spouse is going to be on board with all of it. And they'll just happily, happily be by our side and going on all the same adventures we go on. And you know, come to find out a lot of times the spouse has a very different view of what retirement's going to be I like. Know. So, it, people don't think about that. It's like my husband doesn't like traveling as much as I do. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a, a great example of that is right here in my house. I mean, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that my parents enjoyed a nice 30 year long retirement and they did some great traveling and they were healthy throughout most of it. And uh, I mean, it wasn't anything extravagant. They weren't wealthy, but still it was very satisfying. And for my husband, Jeff, the experience with his, with his parents was very different. They both had no idea really what they wanted to do when they get off. When they stopped working, they sat around the house they, and watched TV. Uh, their health went downhill quickly. His father's now passed away, but the last 10 years of his life was a string of doctor visits and declining health and all mm-hmm. that. And uh, his surviving mother-in-law is much the same way. And so he actually dreaded retirement. He said, I, I don't think I want to retire. I want to keep working because if I retire and then I'm just going to go downhill and die, you know, who wants that? Right. And so we had, ver- we had very different visions of retirement and we have brought our circles much closer into alignment, but we, we still have a little bit of ways to go on that. Well, you had different role models, for sure. Exactly, exactly. So you and I are role models to everybody who doesn't know what they're going to do with their life either. So <laughs> we bring, mm-hmm. we bring right. I bring guests and you bring your own thoughts and um, you bring them and put them on paper. So that is amazing what you do. So you have a book too, right? Design Your Dream Retirement? Uh, That's correct. And there's sort of a tie-in between the book and the Retirement Visualization Guide. And you can use either one independently, but in the book, uh, in each chapter, I talk about one particular aspect of designing or visualizing how your retirement is going to be. And at the end of each chapter, I'll ask a few questions. I, those are now the same questions that are in the Retirement Visualization Guide. So uh, if you don't want to write in the tiny space in the paperback or if you download an electronic version of the book, you have, of course, no place to write, uh, you can use the Retirement Visualization Guide in tandem with the book to, to answer many of the questions that I pose about envisioning your retirement. That's awesome. So the Visualization Guide is kind of like the workbook. That goes hand exactly. in hand with the book. I love it. And for my listeners, yeah. you can actually get that guide 
for free on my website. You just go to rockyourretirement.com slash retirement visualization. And there'll be a link to it also um, on the show notes. And then the book can be found, can we find that on Amazon or where do we find the book? Yeah. Yeah, so it's on Amazon. That is awesome. You know, I have had such fun with you, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been a wonderful guest. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure, too, and I have greatly enjoyed our conversation. Me, too. Now, if somebody wants to read your blog or if they want to contact you, how do they do that? Well, the blog is retirefabulously.com, so that's pretty easy to remember. And there's a contact form on there, or my email address is pretty easy as well. It's dave at retirefabulously.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. And for my listeners, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Rock Your Retirement. Thanks for listening to the Rock Your Retirement show. If you are rocking your retirement or know someone who would make a great guest on our show, please send us an email at podcast at rockyourretirement.com. Oh, wait. I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August... Actually, August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, 
send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com slash support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.